Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. So in this series, uh, we're in a segment called Who Are You? And the past couple weeks, we've been talking about the ego. And the first week, we looked at the barrier of self and how you know, we just get all wrapped up into self, and we don't even realize that, that our ego is kind of taking over. And, and then last week, we looked at the barrier of pride and, and kind of how we contend with pride in our lives and sometimes not even realizing it. And today, we're going to look at the transformed self. And as we were looking at this the past couple of weeks, we saw that the natural condition of our self and our ego was to be inflated or be deflated. And so we used a balloon... And if this is our ego, we said, you know, this balloon is overinflated. Maybe it represents uh, your ego in a way that's you got high self-esteem. But the problem is, is that this balloon is empty. And we need to be filled with Christ. This balloon is empty when we do this on our own strength and we try to measure according to what other people think or what we think. We end up with this emptiness. And it's also, it's also something that we kind of strive to to fill that emptiness with other things, and so it's busy. So the, the ego is empty, it's busy, and it's also painful. When something is overextended or distended, like, you know, your bladder, say you're on the, on the road, and it's like, man, I wish there was a stop. I mean, that's painful after a while. Or if one of your organs was distended, that's painful. And our egos get overinflated and become painful, and they cause us all kinds of pain and other people pain in, in our lives. And then because it's empty and because it's distended, it's also fragile. It's, at any moment, it could get some sharp object or sharp remark, and it could be deflated very quickly. And so we said, okay, we don't want an overinflated ego, and we don't want a deflated ego either, even though that seems strong, and we can say, oh yeah, I can't do this, I can't do that, even though that seems to be humble. The result is the same as this is still empty, just as empty as that blown up balloon, just with air in it. And so, obviously, it's not the high self-esteem or the overinflated ego, as, as some would say, you know, before the 20th century, it was traditionally thought that that's the reason for all of the sin in the world, is pride or an overinflated ego. It's the reason for wars, it's the, it's the reason people steal, it's the reason for a lot of different things. And then something flipped in the 20th century. And now we're saying the reason for all the sin in the world and the brokenness and everything is because we have low self-esteem. And the solution is just keep propping people up. But there's just no end in sight to that, and that doesn't solve the problem either. And so Paul talks about this, and he says, look, it's neither the the high ego, the, the overinflated ego, or the underinflated ego, but there's something different here in the transformed self in Christ where our egos need to be filled up and our identity needs to be filled up with Christ. I want everybody to, uh, to raise up your elbow as high as you can. If you're able, raise up your elbow. That's probably the most attention that your elbow has ever received, right? Why is that? We never think about our elbows. They just work, Right? Or, or the big toe, or the little, maybe the little toe. You never think about your little toe, except when you're doing, you know, he went wee, 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 all the way home. Do you guys ever do that with your kids? No? You're missing it. You're missing it. We, we, unless we draw attention to it, unless it gets hurt, 
We, our elbows just work. Our little toe just works. And that is how our egos need to be. It just needs to work. Not draw attention to itself, but if it's overinflated, it's going to be painful. It's going to be empty, all those things. And it's going to draw attention to itself all the time. If it's underinflated, it's, it's going to be empty, and it's still going to draw attention to itself all the time. Our egos need to be like our elbows. They just work. All right, so we're going to turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It'll be on the screen, but you can turn your Bibles or your, your phones if you want to on that. And we've been using 1 Corinthians, and we've been using the book of James, and we've also been using this work um, and, uh, that's a book by Timothy Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. So I want to give credit there that some of these ideas came from Timothy Keller, but we're grounding this in 1 Corinthians and also in the book of James. So we're going to read what Paul says uh, again in verses 3 and 4. If I can read it. <laughs> Paul says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. All right, we're going to look at James a little bit later. But Paul doesn't care what people think of him. He doesn't let opinions, judgment, or the verdict of others feed his ego or feed his identity. So how do we reach the point when we don't care what people think about us in a healthy way? How do we take that first of many steps into the transformed self in Christ? Paul's approach is outlined in Scripture here. It's very different than the traditional approach of this overinflated ego or underinflated ego and serving one of those as our solution. No, he is saying that the solution is, is, is that I don't care what, I, what anybody thinks about me. Which, for some of you, um, that's a difficult thing. Because you struggle with what people think about you. We all kind of struggle with that in some ways, and that's the ego speaking. But he, Paul takes it one step further. He says, I don't even care what I think about myself. Sometimes the most condemning words come from in here towards ourselves. And he says, look, I have to get beyond that too, that I don't even care what I think. He's saying, I have a very little opinion of your opinion of me, but I have a very little opinion of my opinion of me. That's, that's a different solution than the overinflated or underinflated ego that we need to serve. What matters, he says, is that he has a clear conscience. And that is only accomplished in Christ. The verdict that Christ has declared on those who are finding their identity in him is simply, you're not guilty. You're not guilty. But he goes on, he says, it's not because we're innocent. It's not because I'm innocent. Because it's not about whether we think we are good people or have done good things or if we think these things about others, whether they have done good things in their life. Our deeds associated with innocence are irrelevant. And thank God for that because we're all guilty. They're irrelevant because that measurement leads to a slippery and subjective slope of setting our own standards of what is good, what is right, what is good enough in comparison to others. And it feeds our overinflated or deflated ego if we allow that to be our measurement. And it keeps us enslaved. And that's why we can't even hold our own opinion, our own standard, as the verdict about ourselves. Timothy Keller says this. 
He says, boasting about our self-esteem by living up to our own standards or someone else's sounds like a great solution, but it does not deliver. It can't deliver. I cannot live up to my parents' standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to your standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to society's standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to other society's standards, and that makes me feel terrible. Perhaps the solution is to set my own standards, but I cannot keep those either, and that makes me feel terrible, unless I set incredibly low standards. Are low standards the solution? Not at all. That makes me feel terrible because I realize I am the type of person who has low standards. Trying to boast about our self-esteem by trying to live up to our own standards or someone else's is a trap. It's not an answer. Paul is saying that he has a clear conscience, but that doesn't make him innocent. Now, the word innocent comes from the root word meaning to justify. So just because he has a clear conscience doesn't mean that he's justified because he feels clean. So what is the ultimate verdict if it doesn't depend on what others think or even what what we think or what if it doesn't even depend on a clear conscience? Will we allow these things to be our courtroom and, and our ego to be our judge every day? Will we allow our feelings, whether we are winning this week or, or we're not winning that week, to determine the final verdict? No. Because, thank God, through Jesus the verdict has been handed down. And even though we came into the courtroom guilty, worse even than we think, we are declared not guilty. We are free, even more free than we think. Because it's only the Lord who judges us, who justifies us and declares our innocence. We are free by the ultimate verdict of the Lord. And he declares our identity as free and only opinion, his opinion counts according to Scripture. So how do we know if we're living into the verdict of Christ or these other things? about we th- what we think about ourselves, what other people think about us, our clear conscience. Trying to live into those things doesn't work. So how do we know if we're living into the verdict of Christ, into that transformed self? And I think it's a test of criticism. Are we wounded by criticism, or can we weigh it and learn from it? A person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what people think. And what they themselves think about themselves in their estimation. The ego and barrier self is rising up and becoming first rather than just listening to it and seeing it as an opportunity to change. And those who rise up in themselves by not caring what people think and, and they only put their stock in what they themselves think and say, I don't really care what people think. I'm just going to care what I think. Well, that doesn't work either, right? Because then they never hear wisdom. They're always pushing away people who are trying to speak into their life. And they say, no, I don't care what you think. I'm just going to do my own thing. And that doesn't work either. In either case, the ego is driving our reaction to criticism. But what about the self-forgetting ego, the elbow ego, is, is, if we call it that, that leads to the transformed self? What would be the response to criticism? I think we'd evaluate it. We'd see it as an opportunity to learn. There are people who do not crave attention, yet are not afraid of it. That's the self-forgetting ego. People who don't admire themselves in the mirror, nor cringe either. 
People with a transformed self are not thinking of ways to get the edge over others to make themselves look more successful. And they truly can be happy about second place and the achievement of someone else's getting first place because of the sheer joy of that person accomplishing something great. Can you enjoy things and appreciate things that are not about you? That's the test of criticism. Things that are not to fill your boredom or your emptiness. Things that are not to boost your resume or your list of achievements, but enjoying people and things simply for who they are and what they are. As Keller states, not thinking more of myself as modern culture or less of myself as in traditional culture, simply thinking of myself less. And we're going to turn to James here as we look at the, how the verdict is in, in your note card. James chapter 4, and we've been looking at the book of James too. He speaks a lot about favoritism and pride and all these other things that are symptoms of the ego. And we're just going to read uh, the first 10 verses here. James says this in chapter 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. We get the verdict from Jesus before the performance is even done. If our life is the performance, living out God's story on God's stage, the verdict's in before even we're done with that. And Jesus, He says, you're not guilty. And then out of that joy, we get to live out this performance, this, this beautiful story. And Jesus is saying, because I declare you not guilty, I'm also declaring it's not about your performance that's leading me to my verdict. It's not about all the good things that I think you're going to do that has kind of tilted my heart towards you and says, yeah, I'll forgive you because I think you're going to become a good person. It's not about being a friend to the world and the opinion of those in the world as it states in James, it actually is the opposite. The verdict that Jesus declares over us is because of his great love for us. It says in verse 5, he's jealous for us. the, The Spirit envies that we would understand his love and dwell, be able to dwell in us fully. And his verdict leads to us offering our lives because of grace and his great love for us. And we, it's not an obligation, it's something we, we do joyfully, saying, yes, for what you did for me, you declared me not guilty, I am going to live for you. 
And not just to do good things, but because I want to be in relationship with you. I want to I join your mission. I want your character to fill me even more. I want to do the things that you have outlined in Scripture. Not based on my opinion, or it's not based on my family's opinion, or, or it's not just about, about good things, or what other, comparing to other things that people do or say. It's because Jesus redeemed me, called me, my, by, called me by name, and says, you are mine you are not guilty. Now you get to live with me in relationship with me and allow my spirit to flow through you into the lives of others. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing that God has done for us. And we don't have to earn it. And that is what it means to be a Christian. Some of you have been in this prison for so long that you've started calling it a palace. Because to call it a prison would somehow be dishonoring your parents or your culture, your way of life. And so you had not only to suffer this performance leading to verdict type of prison, type of way of life, type of Christianity, but you had to defend it as beautiful too. But no more. No more as we don't allow our egos to drive us that way, or that performance-based Christianity to enslave us anymore. So how to be transformed in Christ? There is a way to say no more. I grew up in some of the same scenarios of this, of trying to achieve in, in, in this performance-based Christianity that was driven by ego, and it was something that was so so indoctrinated in the culture that you didn't even realize it. Just what you, it's what you did. It was difficult to not just accept this as a way of life and leave well enough alone and say, you know what, it's the, going against the grain of this. Even though Scripture says, yes, this is where I want you to go. And even though Jesus says, I'm calling you out of that into freedom, it was just much easier to say, I don't want to go against the grain. I'm just going to kind of leave well enough alone and keep, you know, everything as it is. But there's so much more. He died for you for so much more than that. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free, not to be enslaved anymore by sin or our egos or things that try to enslave us, the things that we have gotten addicted to. And so we need to be aware of the woven lie. How do we, how do we be transformed in Christ? How do we have our egos be like our elbows that we're forgetting ourselves in some ways. We're not always thinking about ourselves or how we compare to other people. How do we do that? How do we receive Christ? And first of all, it's just to be aware of this woven lie in our lives. We have to be willing to be true to ourselves and, and true to our state of being that we are enslaved by our egos. No matter how painful that is to admit Again, James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you want to receive the grace of God in its fullness? Then we have to admit, yes, we all have a problem with this. And maybe your problem isn't as big as your neighbor's, but do you see that comparison that you immediately went to? That is being enslaved to self and to the ego. 
part of submitting ourselves then to God is to resist the evil one and he'll flee from you. To, to be aware of this lie and, and to admit it and say, God, I need, I need salvation from this. I need to be rescued from this. We must realize that the evil one has woven his lies and imprisonment into good things as his most deceiving and wicked strategy. It's easy to discern between the bad things and the good things, but when you have good things in your life, and the evil one has woven lies into those things and say, no, no, I will never call you away from your family for the, for the gl- glory of God and for the good of the kingdom. That's a lie from the evil one. We see this all throughout Scripture. Jesus says, unless you are willing to leave your family, your mother and your father, your brothers and sisters for my sake, you can have no part with me. And the lie that the evil one weaves in is, no, this is a good thing. Family's a good thing. You, God would never call you away from that. That's a lie. And he uses the good things in our life to lie to us in the worst ways. We must realize that the evil one has woven these lies into our life because he knows it requires courage and discernment to stand up and say, I love you, mom and dad. I love you, grandpa and grandma. But these ways do not square with scripture and are not good for you or for me. We need the next generation, and we need this generation, and we need the older generation to all stand up and say, this is what Scripture says, and this is how I will live, and this is how I will find my identity in Christ. And that is hard, because it's going to require us to go against the grain, and you're going to feel alone, and you're going to feel even persecuted sometimes in your own home. But Jesus is calling you to do that and saying, are you going to follow me? Or are you going to follow your friends and your culture or your family even? We have been deceived in some ways by the evil one in in our good intent not to hurt each other. We have dared not say anything. And it's put us in this awkward place that doesn't feel like freedom in Christ, but enslavement to self, pride, and our egos. But we're telling us it's a palace. It's okay when it's a prison. Verse 6 through 8 that we read there. I'm going to read it again. He says he gives more grace. That's why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, because Jesus Christ has declared you not guilty, so stop acting like you are guilty. Stop living into this thing of trying to prove that you're not guilty by your own actions. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. In addition to recognizing the lies, this woven lie, and submitting ourselves to God with all our brokenness, be honest with how our egos enslave us and how we measure the wrong things. We need to draw near to God. We need to not just recognize the counterfeit, but we need to get to to the real thing in His relationship with us and that he so desires to have, that he understands you inside and out, and he wants you to understand him and his love for you. In his presence, our hearts are purified, and the double-minded self is broken, so our identity in Christ alone can emerge. And when we humble ourselves this way, he promises, he promises to lift you up. You will be broken in this, you will feel alone in this if you, if you live into what he's calling you to live into. And the evil one will still be there 
trying to deceive you and, and weave his different lies. He tries to get ahead of us, but by God's grace, he has sent his son Jesus and he sent his spirit to guide us and to lead us into all truth, to be the power so that we are not enslaved by the lie anymore, but we need to come near to him. Christ will build you up in himself. Our egos need to be like elbows. They just work. They don't draw attention to themselves. They just work. And that's the kind of ego that is filled up with Christ. Not drawing attention to the self any longer because it's overinflated or it's underinflated. When self is set aside, the Holy Spirit is able to step in. My friends, the trial is over. Don't keep on living like you're on trial. The trial's over. Jesus has been tried and found guilty. We look at the crucifixion, we look at the resurrection, but do you understand how ridiculous, ridiculous even the trial was? That he who had no sin was put on trial. But he was tried and he was found guilty because of us. He took on the sin of the whole world, your sin, past, present, future, and the sins of our children, the sins of of these children that we baptized today. He took on that sin before they even sinned, and he took it upon himself on the cross, and he alone was able to do that because he was sinless, the perfect lamb of God, and it's a debt that we could never have repaid ourselves, never And he did this willingly out of his great love for us. And since the penalty has been paid in full, there cannot be another trial for those crimes. There cannot be a different verdict. We are out of the courtroom. We are declared innocent and free on every level. Let us not allow our egos to declare a mistrial or a retrial. Court is adjourned, my brothers and sisters. The verdict isn't what I say. It isn't what you say. It's what the Lord says. So live that out in the transformed self. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you that Jesus not only died for us and made it possible not to be enslaved anymore by our own selves, our own ego, our own pride and the woven lies of the evil one. But he did more than that. He says, I am going to not only redeem you in, in, in this whole process of sanctification and making you holy, making you like me. I'm going to give you my character in that. I'm going to give you my identity in that. And all you need to do is receive it and set yourself aside so that there's more room for me. Jesus, wow. What you did for us is truly amazing. Help us to see it. Give us courage to live into it. And may that supersede all of our commitments to family and to friends and to culture and and even a lot of the good things you've given to us. Break those things that need to be broken in Jesus' name so that we can be free and truly free indeed as you have died for us. We love you. And we thank you again in your name. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.